Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, while you're uh, turning there, if you're visiting with us uh, this morning, uh, it's, it's generally our practice to preach through uh, books of the Bible, uh, context by context. Uh, we've, uh, over the years, been through Luke and Genesis and Titus and Philippians and Jonah, and I'm not even sure uh, what else anymore. I can't remember them all. Uh, and uh, this morning we are up to Acts chapter 4. Uh, a little context, and given the, the length of the chapter, I'm not going to ask you to stand. Uh, we normally stand when we read, read God's Word, but there's, there's no magic in that. We do it out of, out of reverence for God's Word, but um, given the length of the chapter. Let me sort of catch you up, though, because um, we're actually in the middle of a story. We're in the middle of one event. Uh, the reality is that that beginning at the beginning of Acts three, uh, up through the end of our passage this morning, is all one account. It's all one story. It's all one event. It all takes place in the exact same uh, spot in the in the temple. Uh, it began with the healing of uh, a man who had been lame from birth and is now over forty. Peter and John um, healed that man. Um, and uh, then uh, it, it continues after, uh, after that healing and then after uh, the prayer meeting in the temple uh, out in, in Solomon's porch. Uh, it continues there. And then um, this is sort of the conclusion, if you will, of that one event, that one account. Uh, we will read Acts 4, uh, beginning in verse 1. Uh, and uh, I'm either going to stop at 22 or 31. We're going we're gonna to cover all of uh, through 31. Hear God's word. Uh, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple, the Sadducees came upon them and gre- uh, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening, but many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in, and when they had set them, that's Peter and John, in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him... This man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that 
For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. But in order that they may spread no further, that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they had heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and His anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Uh, We pray, O Holy Spirit, uh, as the author of these words, as the one who has preserved them for us, that you would now be at work in them and by them in our own hearts and lives. Open our ears our minds, our eyes, to see and hear and understand. Uh, But more importantly, would you change us by it? We pray in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen. I know some of you are um, perhaps a little worried about what the future holds. Uh, Maybe not so much for you, but for kids and grandkids. Um... You watch the news, you watch the world around us, you watch the the evidence sort of piling up, and you are more and more convinced that the day is coming when speaking about Christ, when proclaiming salvation by Christ alone, when living and teaching according to God's Word, when that all becomes hate speech. Uh, and and when it becomes dangerous, perhaps, even for preachers to stand in the pulpit and, and proclaim Christ as the only way of salvation, you're afraid of what your children, the world your children are going to grow up in. Is it really going to be a crime to actually be a Christian? Because if you watch the news, it almost seems like we're headed that way. And, and that could very well 
possibly happen. That's entirely possible. Well, the good news is Acts 4 is here to both comfort and equip us should that day arrive. Because right here in Acts 4, that's exactly the context. And and notice first the council's problem, which is really not a problem. it's It's a conglomeration of problems all piled up together. Notice verses 1 and 2. The the temple police, as it were, gather together and arrest Peter and John and throw them in prison. The problem is it's too late to have a trial. Uh, They're going to have to wait till the next day. And so Peter and John uh, had to to spend the night in prison and wait until um, this group gathers again the next day. And then, then you get... Uh, the, the list of names those people gathered in verses 5 and, and 6. And, and if you go back, this is, your, this is part of your Sunday afternoon assignment, uh, go back to Luke 22 uh, and, and read the list of people who arrested and tried Jesus. It's the same list. We're only two months later, two and a half months, like we're seven to ten weeks after the arrest, trial, crucifixion, resurrection of Jesus. It's the same people. They've, they're now conspired against, having conspired against Christ, and now conspired against uh, His followers, Peter and John. And you'll notice that in this list here in Acts 4 is a group called the Sadducees. They were um, one of the two main Jewish leadership groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And you're wondering, how do I keep them straight? The Pharisees were the conservatives. They, they, they believed um, uh, the whole counsel of God. They, they were really sort of applying the law strictly and conservatively. The Sadducees were sort of the, would have been viewed as the liberals. Um, they actually didn't believe in a resurrection. They only held to the first five books of the Old Testament, the, the five books of Moses. And they contend that in those books they see no evidence of a bodily resurrection. So they don't believe in a resurrection. They're sad, you see. They have no hope of a future. And that makes them sad, you see. Now you can remember who's who. But they they gather against Peter and John precisely because Peter and John are preaching a resurrection. They're saying that Christ was raised from the dead. That the one whom you crucified, whom you put to death, God raised from the dead. And the Sadducees goes, whoa, hold on, time out. That's not a thing. That that doesn't exist. We don't believe in a resurrection. The, The books of Moses don't teach a resurrection. And so their their problem is at least part of their problem, they're, they're forced to, in their minds, arrest Peter and John and throw them in prison so they can stop this teaching. Uh, this teaching can't get out because it's not true. And if it's not true, it's heresy, and we've got to put a stop to it. But their problem is further than it goes further than that. It's bigger than that. Look at verse 4. Part of the problem is that now the number of believers, verse 4, Not what it says. The number of men is now 5,000. Okay, back in Luke 1, there were about 120. 
At the end of Luke 2, there were 3,000 converted in one day. And now in verse 4, you just count, you just count men. And it's 5,000 plus women plus children. And their problem isn't just what Peter and John are teaching. Their problem is also the people. It's the masses. Look down at verse 21. Notice they even admit it. The council says, look, um, and when they had further threatened Peter and John, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. So they're worried about what the crowds will say. The masses, the people are, are, have responded in faith and they're praising and glorifying Christ for His work in this world. And so they've got to be careful. They've got to worry a little bit more about the opinion polls and how the people around them will respond. And, and what will they say about us if we arrest these people and throw them in prison and keep them there? So their problem, the teaching of Peter and John, it's the crowd, it's, there's more. Look at verses 12 and 13. Peter and John are uneducated, common men. Literally unlettered men. In other words, it's not, you know, Apostle Peter, PhD. Apostle Peter, MDiv from RTS. Uh, he doesn't have a seminary degree. He doesn't have um, training in one of the recognized rabbinical schools. Um, they're just regular common men. But they've been with Jesus. They've taught. I mean, they've learned as Christ taught. As Christ was teaching the crowds and privately the disciples as Christ was healing, as Christ was carrying out His work on earth, Peter and John had front row seats. But they lacked the formal training from any of the, the recognized official rabbinical schools. And so these people, the, the Sadducees are perhaps confused, perhaps frustrated, perhaps, perhaps angered at the fact that these men are proclaiming with such boldness and authority and yet lack the proper letters after their name. But wait, there's more. Look at verse 14. Part of their problem too is the lame man that everybody knew is standing right there in the midst. You almost get this image throughout chapter 3 and 4 that after this lame man is healed, that he, I think I mentioned this last week, he throws one arm around Peter, one arm around John, or kind of links his arm through theirs and refuses to let go. And they're looking and going, well, here's our dilemma, verse 14. The problem is that this man who is now over 40, who has never in his life been able to stand, he's been lame since birth, now, verse 14, standing right there beside Peter and John. They can't argue with the fact that a miracle has happened. Nobody can say, well, but, I mean, it's all smoke and mirrors. And if you squint your eyes just right, and if you shine the light at the right angle, if you just turn this mirror and if you hide the smoke, 
There's, there's, there's no way to deny this man that a miracle has happened and they don't even try to. In fact, they, by asking Peter, how did you do this? They admit that a miracle has happened, has occurred. So the council has a problem. It has several problems that sort of conspire against them. The teaching of, of these disciples, the, the lame man is standing right there in their midst, the evidence of the, the miraculous healing, the reaction and, and the crowds of the people, uh, the fact that Peter and John have no rabbinical training at all. It all adds up to one big problem for this, this council, for the the high priest and the former high priest who really kind of carries the, the weight and the Sadducees and, and the temple guard um, who had you know was sort of second in command. Um, it all conspires against this council. And that is what many of us are afraid of. That a day is coming when all the leaders get together and say, being a Christian is now a crime. And to say someone else that what they believe is wrong is actually hate speech. To say that Jesus is the only way of salvation, that's actually hate speech. To tell someone that you disagree with them. To say that that here's what Scripture says on on. Uh, the issue of, of sexuality and gender issues and, and how it speaks to all of these various issues. If you stand on that, you will be considered performing a hate crime. Many of us are convinced that that day is coming when this kind of oppression from local authorities is, is contrary to God's revealed will. And for that matter... We're pretty sure that God ought to be putting an end to this kind of oppression. There are plenty of, of Christians out there who would teach that if, if you're going through trials like this, if you're suffering in any way for the gospel, then it must mean that you lack faith. If you had more faith, then you wouldn't be going through this. And yet, the pattern of Scripture is the exact opposite. Jesus warns us as much. In Luke 21, He tells the disciples, Before all this, they will lay their hands on you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for My name's sake. You will be hated by all for My name's sake. The reality is, we should not be surprised when this kind of oppression happens in our world to believers. We should go, there it is. We've been expecting this day to come. Jesus promises suffering for His followers. He doesn't promise your best life now. And here we are just a, a couple of months after the death and, and resurrection of Christ. And the same people that arrested and put Jesus to death are now after Peter and John. What if that day comes for us? Well, I want you to notice the church's preaching 
beginning in verse 7. Peter and John are brought into the courtroom. They're asked the question, by what power or by what name did you do this? They recognize that they are somehow involved in the healing of this lame man. They've had some sort of participation in this man being able to walk. And you notice how Peter responds. Peter responds. He sees this as an invitation not to fear, not to cower, but to proclaim Christ. You want to know how this guy was healed? What wasn't us. We didn't do it. It's not by our power. It wasn't by magic. It's not some sorcery we drummed up. It's all in the name of Christ that this man has been healed. It's because of Jesus that this man walks. And the reality is, this is actually the third time Peter has basically preached the same sermon. Now, we're not going to examine the, the contents of his sermon. We're just going to place it sort of in the context of, of the story and the events going on around it. If you want to, we examined the content of his sermon a little more uh, in depth last week, and that'll be on our website later this week. I had some issues with getting it posted. But anyway, it'll be there if you want to go hear that. But it's basically the third time Peter has said, look, you guys keep opening the door for me to talk about Jesus. And what you really want is for me not to talk about Jesus. So here's an idea. If you didn't ask me how this miracle happened, I wouldn't really have much to say. I'd you know figure it out. But how did you do this? Well, funny you should ask. Jesus did it. I didn't do it. John didn't do it. Jesus did it. Notice the name he uses in verse 10. By the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. This name has come up a couple of times already in the first few chapters. Do you remember what this council wanted to write above Jesus' head? As he was nailed to the cross, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Nazareth was nowhereville. It was nothing. Nothing good ever came out of there. It's not like you know. That's not exactly the the place you would expect the deliverer of Israel to come from. And so there's a there's a bit of mocking there from the council. Peter and John say, "Remember him." You remember Jesus, that's his, his earthly name. It's a form of Joshua. Christ, that's not a last name, that's a title. The Messiah, the Redeemer. From little old Nazareth that you put to death. Remember that sign? Yeah, that's the guy. He's the one that made this man well. They had killed him just a few months earlier. They had rejected Him, we read a few minutes ago from Psalm 118, and now He's the, the chief cornerstone, the, the, the stone on which and by which the church is built. You know, scriptures, all Scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for training, 
for correction, for reproof. This passage equips us, it trains us for the day when we too may stand before authorities and and face opposition on account of Christ. How did Peter and John respond? And see, the question is an invitation to proclaim Christ. Oh, that we might be equipped and strengthened and emboldened for that day. Peter responds with a a mini-sermon and points to the person and work of Christ. And then invites them to saving faith, to trust in Him for their salvation. Do you remember the um, 1988 vice presidential debates between Lloyd Benson and, and Dan Quayle? Uh, Dan Quayle was asked a question about, um, well, his youth and inexperience. If something should happen, if, if, if Bush and Quayle are elected and Bush the senior, if he gets elected president, and, you know, he's kind of old. If something were to happen to him while in office, would you be able to serve in that role? And so Dan Quayle's answer, yes. I, I, would, I have as much experience as all, any number of other people. And then he made the comparison. I have more experience than Jack Kennedy did when he ran for president. Remember Lloyd Benson's response? Sir, I knew Jack Kennedy. I served with Jack Kennedy. Jack Kennedy was a friend of mine. You're no Jack Kennedy. One of the best responses in a debate. You ever have those moments, like, are you listening to this passage going, self, you're no Apostle Peter? Like, it's one thing for us to read about Peter standing. I mean, it's Peter, right? He's one of the, the core three. Peter, James, and John, he was sort of the inner group uh, among the, the sort of the closest friends of Jesus while he was on the earth. I mean, Jesus had you know, hundreds of disciples, but then he had the 12 that he had chosen to be with him. And even within the 12, there were three. And Peter's one of those three. And that's Peter. How am I going to self? You're no Apostle Peter. You sure? Look at Mark 14 with me for just a second. Mark 14. Look at verse 66. As Peter was below in the courtyard, Jesus has been arrested. He's on trial, sort of. One of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, Hey, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I don't know what you're talking about. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, Hey, this guy is one of them. Again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, uh, for you are a Galilean. Verse 71, And he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. Eight weeks later. Right? We do this, oh, well, that was decades. We, we do this sort of 
eight weeks later, he's standing before this council proclaiming Christ. We might be more like Peter than we realize. We're quick to to shy away, to deny, to hide if we have to. I don't know. I mean, I don't want to be associated. Something could happen and I don't want to. Peter did the exact same thing. A servant girl made him cuss and deny Christ. And the council, and he doesn't flinch. He's arrested, thrown in the midst. How did you do this? Jesus did it. You and I may very well be called to proclaim Christ before the high and the low. And you notice in verses 18 to 20, the council had nothing except hatred for the name of Christ. They can't deny that a work has been done. They don't argue with them. Their whole decision, I mean, you put all these supposedly learned men in the room together and the best thing they've got is, well, stop it. No more talking about Jesus. That's all they've got, right? Sort of slap them on the wrist and say, okay, you can leave, but don't do that again. Don't you go talking about Jesus. That's what the world around us hates. They hate us only because of Christ in us. They hate Christ. And Peter and John simply say, look, I I, I must obey God and not you. I must keep His commands and not you. And He has commanded us Make disciples of all nations, baptizing te- and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Spirit. Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. So now, this group, this council says, no more talking about Jesus. Jesus says, your marching orders are to take my name everywhere you go. We'll obey Jesus. Here's, a, here's an aside, by the way, on, on perhaps civil disobedience among believers. As long as your authorities, your local authorities, your, your civil authorities are not commanding you to do something contrary to Scripture, we obey the civil authorities. As soon as their commands violate God's commands, we must disobey them. We must obey God rather than man. We see the council's problem, the church's preaching, and then lastly, we see the, the church's prayer. Notice how the passage ends, verses 23 to 32. We won't examine the, the prayer in great detail, but let me just make a few sort of observations. Peter and John, they're slapped on the wrist, they're sent out, and notice where they went to their friends. They found the church. They found their brothers and sisters in Christ. Look, you can't live the Christian life alone. We need each other. We need the church. And Peter and John, Peter and John, right? See, the same argument we make, well, it's Peter. I mean, of course he stood there and proclaimed Christ. Well, it's Peter. He's one of the apostles. He needs the church. 
He, they, you almost get the image of them running to them. It happens so quickly. They run to their friends. They recount the story. And the church prayed. There's no talking here about, well, let's form a political party. There's no talk here about, well, we have to vote those people out of office. There's no talk here about, well, how dare they and, and we'll show them. They drop to their knees and pray. Notice what they pray. Notice how the prayer begins. Sovereign Lord, creator of heaven, earth, sea, Everything in them. It begins with adoration. It didn't start with keep us from oppression. That's where I would have started. See, I would have started, I would have jumped straight to the point. God, don't ever let that happen to me again. That would have been my prayer. That prayer is nowhere to be found in this passage. God, you're sovereign over everything. You made it all. You keep it all. You rule over it all. Oh, and by the way, you told us in your word this was going to happen. And then they pray Psalm 2. They pray the Psalms back to God. Hey, by the way, you told us there would be rulers that rise up against you and your anointed. And look, hey, it's happening right here in our midst. Peter understands, the disciples, they understood that Psalm 2 is about Jesus. And he sees the people around them plotting and scheming together against the Messiah. You know, you can, you can, you, you, you can't unite Alabama and Auburn people except in their hatred for LSU. Right? I mean, you can't unite Ole Miss and, and Mississippi State people together except in their hatred for LSU. It's amazing that, that people, two groups who would never ever agree on anything at all, are glad to work together against a common enemy. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Gentiles, the, the Roman authorities, the Jewish authorities. The, the Jews hated the Romans, except when they needed to get rid of Jesus. And that's what's gone on so far. And, and this early church, this eight-week-old, right after the, the resurrection church is going, Hey, Psalm 2 is about our situation. It's about Jesus. He's the Lord's anointed and all the rulers around us have risen up against Him. And nowhere, read it, scan through it, nowhere do they pray for the oppression to go away. Instead, they pray in light of the reality of this oppression, give us boldness. Would you, would you grant us your spirit so that we don't cower next time? No, we didn't cower today, but it's entirely possible that we will tomorrow. We don't know. Would you, would you grant us the boldness not to? Would you grant us your spirit to give us the strength to, to not cower the next time we're dragged into a courtroom for this trial? They prayed for boldness and the building shook as evidence that God has heard their prayer.
the council's problem, the church's preaching, the church's prayer. Let me make a handful of applications from this passage. First of all, you the place of corporate prayer in the life of the church is undeniable. These people are arrested, they proclaim Christ, and they run to the church. They run to their brothers and sisters and say, let's pray together. We need that. We need to be committed to corporate prayer. We need it. We should value it. And there's, it, it serves a role in the life of the church that nothing else can accommodate. A second application, if you will, uh, we're, we're a Presbyterian church and we're frequently accused of things like, maybe not us per se, but our denomination, frequently accused of things like, well, people that believe in predestination and election, they don't believe in evangelism. The prayer begins with, you are in control of everything. The disciples are all about predestination and God's sovereignty in everything. And yet, every sermon Peter preaches There's an invitation to saving faith in Christ. You and I cannot hide behind our theology and say, well, we don't have to evangelize because God's in control of it all. Yeah, He's in control of it all. And He uses us to accomplish what He intends to control. What He has ordained, what will happen. A third application. Notice that for these saints, Scripture interpreted their experience not the other way around. We frequently let our experience drive our understanding of God's Word. That is backwards. God's Word gives clarity to our experience. Hey, we've been oppressed. Uh, They're trying to stamp out Christ and His followers. Well, yeah, of course. That's what Psalm 2 said would happen. They're using Scripture to, to understand more clearly their experience we would do well to do the same. A fourth application. Notice that we've been told on multiple occasions now that Peter has been filled with the Spirit. Acts 2, Acts 3, here in Acts 4 a couple of times. That's not a second Pentecost. That's not some second blessing Uh, They received the Spirit at at Pentecost. We we receive the Spirit when we're converted. But there is a role, a function of the Spirit in our lives to grant us boldness. To grant us... In fact, Jesus told His disciples, when the day comes that you're arrested and you don't know what to say, it's okay. The Spirit will tell you what to say. And so we ask to be filled with the Spirit for special particular reasons, even though we already have the Spirit in fullness as believers. It's not a separate event. It's not a second event. It's the role and function of the third person of the Trinity in the life of believers. And then lastly, the Gospel's for everybody. Jesus, I mean, Peter stands in front of these Jewish leaders and they hear the gospel because the gospel is for them. And yet there's 
thousands of people who have already heard and believed the gospel, and they're not the Sadducees. They're not the Jewish leaders. They're the regular people, if you will. We get this image, in the, particularly in the first three chapters of, I mean, the, chapters 2, 3, and 4 of Acts. The gospels for the high and the low, the educated, the uneducated, the Gentile and the Jew, for everybody, for men and women, the gospel is for everybody. If you're sitting here this morning thinking, uh, but, I mean, maybe not me. I mean, I know, okay, I know the gospel's for everybody, but what you really mean is the gospel's for everybody except me. That's not what the passage says. Trust in Christ, run to Him, and there find forgiveness for sin. Let's pray together.